Warning, Mombies will discuss information regarding true crime or other topics that are spooky in nature. This may be offensive to some listeners. For more information on the potential trigger warnings in this episode, please review our show notes and be cautious when listening. I'm Beth. I'm Christina. And I'm Holly. And we're the Mombies. great question weird just just absolutely strange how do you even do that i feel like that's gotta mean something something thing, thing, thing. hello spooky humans welcome back to the mommy's podcast i'm beth i'm holly and today we are sitting down with Edrar and Shelby Sosa, the director and cinematographer of the new documentary, Our Precious Hope Revisited, St. Louis's Little Jane Doe. Welcome back to Mombies, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so you guys already probably know we have recorded this. Uh, I goofed when I was setting something up in the system, so we didn't get any of the episode. So we are so thankful that you guys came back and were patient with us. Um, so we'll, we'll be talking about the same questions that you guys didn't hear, but we've already discussed, but I'm sure we'll have new things to say, so that's always fun. Um, so I wanted to start by asking, uh, Adora, what drew you to this case? Were you interested in true crime generally, or is it just this case in particular? So uh, true, true crime, yes. I, I watch a lot of documentaries and stuff like that, but originally it was because uh, I was probably the same age she was uh, as a kid, and I can remember my mom telling me, you know, uh, come inside they're cutting little kids heads off and at that time you know there was Adam Walsh the Atlanta child murders this happened all around the exact same time so even though a morbid sense of humor you know that always stuck with me and I can remember uh, I don't know you probably a little younger than me but going to the mall after this happening and doing like the fingerprint cards and stuff like that mm-hmm. oh yeah I, remember, I didn't do those but I remember hearing about that yeah so so I, I remember that. Me and my mom over the years talked about this here or there. And uh, it's just something we always came back to. And then she passed away in 2016. And you kind of said to myself, you know what, for like a memory, I should do a documentary about that. But it never, it's kind of one of those things you say you mean, but just doesn't happen. And then I got COVID uh, two years ago. And I was in the hospital for six weeks touch and go a little bit for a minute and I told myself if I made it out I was going to make the documentary and I got out sold my car bought the equipment and we made a film so I awesome. love that story that so, so much awesome. <laughs> we're glad that you made it out and I'm pretty sure Hope's going to be real glad you made it out real soon so um, how about you Shelby Did you, were you interested in true crime or what brought you to doing this with your dad I like true crime because when I got in trouble, that's what we had to do. We had to sit and watch documentaries <laughs> in History Channel. So, I mean, once you like something, they can't take it away from you. That's true. <laughs> okay, did you have a question next, or do you want to, I have... Um, no, you're good. Just okay. go, and I will just chime in. Chime in, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you made a note at the library about the first few days of media coverage in this case, and a kind of upsetting connection to the show M.A.S.H., yeah. So could you tell our listeners about that? So February 28th, 1983, uh, 
on the news that night, even though this body had been discovered in the afternoon that day and, and the FBI coming in and calling it, you know, the worst case ever in St. Louis history, the leading story up until the first commercial break, uh, break on the news that night was this was the last live episode of MASH. Not live as they were doing it live, but but the last episode of that series right. actually going. So that was the major story on February 28th. So heartbreaking that that's what they're talking about instead of finding a little girl. And you would think that now it would be different. You would think. But it's still it's not. not. I'm sure it happens constantly. Yeah. Okay, so you guys already know the story, hopefully. Uh, if you haven't listened yet, go back and listen to our episode where we talked about the whole story. And we covered the inconsistencies in what really happened versus what the story has been this entire time, which most of which is what Burns uncovered in his documentary. So if you haven't watched it, please go watch it. Um, I know I watched it on, I purchased it on Amazon Prime. I'm sure it's available in other places too, but go get it. You will not be sorry. Um, so I want to talk about evidence. And the first thing that I have is the documentary mentions that a white pubic hair was found at the crime scene and that Hope had semen. Uh, different people said different things. One said on her body, one said on and in her body. Um, so one were those tested and put in the system and then kind of what came from that. Okay, so the, the white pubic hair, uh, it, uh, Sergeant McGlynn clarifies that that was actually a Caucasian pubic hair, which uh, kind of threw the pathologist because it only said white pubic hair in the autopsy. So she didn't know if that meant white person, white in color, or, or what it possibly was. But it, it was a Caucasian hair. Uh, again, was it transfer or what? I know that the hair was found the next morning in the morgue and not on the scene. So there's a very high probability that it was actually in the body bag, which I didn't know they reused body bags. <laughs> But it could have came from the body bag. <laughs> Which is just bananas. That's happened so many times. I talk about that in here in my notes that how many things are just cross-contaminated all right. the time. And you're talking about a body that you still need to get lots of evidence on. You're just going to stick it in a bag where right. other people have been in that bag. Right. Yeah, the, the body was wrapped in a, in a, in a white Right. Sheet, but I mean, the, did the sheet move in the bag? Right. If it's a child body, adult body bag, you know, what's the movement during transportation? So, Absolutely. I mean, it, it's there. As far as the semen, it was both on the body and in the body, which publicly wasn't known till Dr. Joy Carter. But uh, the, the semen was collected, and it's either uh, three swabs and six slats. Or, or three slats and six swabs. I can't remember the order, but that's how many they had okay. of the samples. I do know that from what I was told, the uh, pubic hair, they only got a blood type from mm -hmm. and that they needed the entire sample for that right. uh, to, to even get that blood type because that's the technology they had at that time. Right, right? absolutely. Uh, but the slats, the police told me, you know, that type of evidence doesn't come to them. They don't know where it's at or they haven't seen it. Uh, McGlynn told me that. Gotcha. So we can the most pertinent part hold. of the, right. Let's the hold all the evidence. That they're just holding that close to the chest and they have something and it's going to get tested and we're going to find out. Something. And I do want to throw this out there for people. Uh, 
So McGlynn didn't start on the police force till 1985. So he wasn't even there in 83, and he wasn't a detective yet. But he once he got this case, it, it's, it's been his. Yeah. So. And you can tell in the documentary, you can see his... I don't want to say enthusiasm because that sounds bad, but his enthusiasm for solving this case, like how passionate he is about it, you can just see it in his face every time he talks about it, which is important to note because it's really easy to, to go, well, police don't care. Well, I mean, sure, there are police that don't. That exists, but police officers are trying. Just, you know, it, unfortunately, the robber doesn't always just walk in and go, I did this. This is what happened. Sometimes it takes some work. And just because we don't know what's going on doesn't Absolutely. mean they're not into it. Absolutely. Right. So. I mean, just like some of the things that you discuss in the documentary that, like you said, it hasn't been out there yet because they're holding that stuff close so they can use it to their advantage. They don't want this person knowing we're on top of you, we know where you are, if that's the case or when it becomes the case. Um, okay, so uh, the next note I have is about Dr. Joy Carter, who was incredible in the documentary. Uh, and I should mention she was the first African-American chief medical examiner in the history of the United States, which is fantastic and worth noting um so she i thought she did a really great job of walking us through the autopsy report and making it so that we could understand it line by line even though you know she has all this expertise and i know absolutely nothing about that stuff um she just made it so it was very easy to understand it was very very simple and straightforward uh, and she puts to rest this rumor that Hope had spina bifida, which if you Google St. Louis Jane Doe today, I did this this morning or this afternoon, the top article that comes up from Fox 2 says she had spina bifida. How did that end up as part of the story? Uh, so the, the theory that is kind of about that is around the time that an article came out around 1990-ish, mm -hmm. there was a, a, in that same paper, there was an article about a, a missing child in Belleville that had spina bifida. So okay. the only connection that I could really make is those two articles being in the same paper. Okay. But it was something that the police attribute, and Burgoon says it in the film, to web sleuth kind of adding their own thing yeah. and then regurgitating the same information. Gotcha, gotcha. And that does happen. I mean, we confuse cases. No, <laughs> Just talking about I, cases. Yeah, absolutely. Wait, was that the one where this and this? So. But the Doe Network... The Doe Network has removed, well, they had not removed, but they put, even though it has been widely reported, it is not true that she had spina bifida. Mm -hmm. And I'm proud of that because they cite my film as the source for that. That's so. amazing. Awesome. Megan, thank okay, you. Okay, so I want to go back just a go quick second. So when we were talking about the pubic hair, was it on the documentary that they were talking about the possibility that that was one of the police officers' pubic yeah. hairs? Yeah. Yes, it, it was. Uh, and believe it or not, that was the belief at the time uh, because they were trying to figure out, you know, where it came from. But again, it wasn't found the day of. Right. It was found the next day. But it was the, one theory was that an officer Papa probably stepped over the body and it fell out his pants leg. Now, the only two officers that were allowed in the room were older officers. Okay. Herb Riley was one of them, and Stan Stokowski was the other one. Stan had retired from the homicide department and joined the medical examiner's office, so that's why he was in there. And then Herb was just three years away from retirement because he retired in 1986. Mm -hmm. So I would assume that they had white hairs on their body. So, right. so I could see where that would be a possibility. Right. And if you're just trying to come up with a reason, then you can see why maybe it's this. Maybe I mean, we do that. It still boggles my mind to think that that could be a possibility, you know, knowing yeah. going into something like I'm going to this 
I'll check on this murder and my pubic hairs might just fall off of me on there coincidentally. Well, what, what, boggles, what? what boggles my mind about it is because it turned out to be a Caucasian hair, why was it then like, oh, it's Caucasian, so it's not the killer? Yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's very Oh, it must true. just be this. Somebody just right. fell off of his pants. No. I could see maybe that's not likely like in this area. Like this is a prim- predominantly white area, so you would expect to see a white hair, you know, or something like that. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure that's what they meant. <laughs> I'm sure it's absolutely not what they meant. I was just trying to say there. Are, there are reasons that maybe you could make an assumption like that. No, I'm sure that's not what they meant. <laughs> Before you move on, yes, absolutely. Uh, you you had asked about Mash and and the news and yes, everything. Yes. I do I do want to remind everybody that, again, even though the the FBI told the press this is the worst case in St. Louis history, it still ap- appeared on page four A of the newspaper That's rather right. than the front page. Yeah. But again, a week later, uh, a white child gets a whooping and goes to the hospital and his front page news that he was beaten severely even though he was still alive right That's so, so just, crazy i didn't want to introduce that in the film because you know ways it plays here mm-hmm. in different parts of the country yeah. but i do think that is vital to oh. the message not getting out the way it should at that oh, time absolutely absolutely i mean you even you know now you look at how they how the media particularly words things in cases if you've got a white victim versus a black victim, the pictures that they use. I mean, all of those things are so vastly different. And there are still people that go, that's not the case. And you're like, what? are you blind? It's right in front of your face. You can look at these papers and see. And I mean that. A week later, you've got a little, a little white kid that gets, gets beat up. I mean, beat up, not that that's not a big deal, but, and that's front page news. Right. And then remember too, if your front page, your picture's color. Right. If you're page four, it's black and white. So right. that's a big difference, too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's imperative in that beginning time when you're talking about the case and trying to get the information out there as quick as possible. And that's sad. Right. Uh, so I well, stayed with Dr. Carter, and she says unequivocally that Hope was sexually assaulted and beaten in the head. And that information comes directly from the autopsy report. So again, it kind of seems like a rumor ended up as part of the official story because everywhere, same article I searched for today, it said police can't say for sure if she was sexually assaulted, even though it is right there plain as day in that report. Do you think that police were trying to keep that detail out of the media at the time? or? Uh, I don't think uh, what I kind of alluded to before, that they felt society was ready for the severity of, of what happened. Mm-hmm. But at, at the same time, we have to remember that uh, in doing this research, multiple police told me that there was no cap on any policeman at the scene not to speak to the press. Homicide department thought they would solve this in a day or two once a parent says somebody's missing. So six months down the line when they haven't found anybody yet, to claim the child, now they have to try to make one story out of all of the stories that were out there. So that's why things seem off like a pipe and, and, and was she sexually assaulted or not? Because one particular officer may not have known that detail where another one may have. So, and a lot that happens in this case, the police never said one way or the other, they just didn't correct one way or the other that's either. True. So that that's kind of important with some of the details. Yeah, and it seems like the media too, when they post stuff, I, 
You'd think they'd issue a retraction if something is wrong, but I, I have found with most of the cases that I've covered, it's they'll say one thing, and then three papers later they say something different, and they just pretend like they never said that other thing. Don't look over here. Look mm -hmm. at this new paper. So if they reported it, they would just change it and right. not even say anything. What I, what I thought was funny about what you're saying in this case is details like that, if you if you look at a newspaper or whatever, like with the spina bifida or what, was she not sexually assaulted, do the research on this and you'll see that anything that they're not sure of, they quote another source to make sure they can say, well, we got that from them. Right. You know, yeah, so. that's true. <sighs> I'll start paying it. I'm going to be paying attention to that now all the time. Like, uh-huh, okay. I hit the table. I was doing it the whole time. I keep kicking the table, too. Uh, let's see. I already asked you that. Okay. So then another note about Dr. Carter. She was incredible, in case you guys haven't watched it. She was amazing. So she gives an explanation about Hope's height that makes sense of the statement that she was tall for her age, which is kind of what's been the story this whole time. Uh, and it helps give a better idea of how old she actually was. So in case any of our listeners have forgotten, can you kind of describe what she thought had happened? Absolutely. So uh, first thing to cover is that even though it's out there a four foot ten, the autopsy never says four foot ten anything. Mm -hmm. It says she is 58 inches, which is four foot ten, but it's, you, you have to remember it's, it doesn't say height four foot ten. It says right. 58 inches. Right. Uh, nowhere in the autopsy does it list uh, a foot measurement. So uh, the 58 inches is to the sever point of the neck. Mm -hmm. So that's where the decapitation happened, which was in between C1 and C2, so basically at the base of the skull. So if you reduce the size of the foot, if they measured from the toe, because it's not in the autopsy, so just assuming they measured from the toe, the 58 inches would reduce by five or six inches, which would bring her height down to that of an eight or a nine-year-old child, you know, a basic one. Again, this is just an educated guess, I'd right, say, because right. we don't know where the actual measurement was from at first. Right. But, I mean, it makes sense, and then to think, you know, People are looking at this, possibly looking at a little girl who went missing in their family and going, well, she wasn't tall for her age. She didn't have spina bifida. Exactly. Couldn't be her. And then that's it. They don't look at it anymore. And it, we, we can't do that. We have to talk about, well, yeah, sure, she could have been tall for her age. Sure, absolutely. Maybe the measurement was that way. But also, she may have been average height and, you know, eight years old and not... And no one thought Ten of it years at this time. Absolutely. Five inches tall. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, five inches taller. Right. Tall. Which was kind of what, what we were getting at as, yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. That's so important. I'm really glad that you guys uh, figured that out. And they said, uh, we mentioned it in the episode too, Dr. Carter said that um, the same thing was done with Tupac. Mm -hmm. So that's something that everybody can... Which I can remember when that happened, yes. people, people died, you know, was saying that, oh, he's still alive because he wasn't really that tall. Mm -hmm. I, can, I can remember that, that oh, conversation. It's still out there. I mean, there's still people that are like, well, it wasn't him. He wasn't that tall. It was oh, like what goodness. Dr. Carter said, so stop. <laughs> And Dr. Carter, just uh, for this isn't really in the film, but she was the perfect person to look at this. Not one only because she was an African American doctor, but when she finished at Howard, she actually did her uh, major training in Miami in the 80s, which was during the cocaine war. So she saw a lot of decapitation. So she's seen more than 
other people. So she was the perfect person right. to actually look at this. And so. you could feel that the whole time she was talking about it. I mean, it was incredible. She was incredible. Uh, that also the that reminds me the when she talked about how the examiners of that time you know, in 1983 weren't familiar with dealing with the but the, basically dealing with the bodies of black people and i was just like but you're in st louis how can you not tell those things you you're in a town that's full of it's not like you're only in a in a totally white area you have to be dealing with the bodies of black men and women. How do you not know how to to see these things on their skin, just like you would be able to do on a white person's skin? You should be trained to do that, just because of who, the victims that you're dealing with. I just that just blew my mind when she said they wouldn't know that. I'm like, what? Are you serious? But but even that, Dr. Case is older, That's true. so her training would have been pre the 80s yeah uh, even then i mean i i don't know her specific age right. but she is older right so and i'm not trying to, uh, to attack dr case i just it just blew my mind to think and i mean you know it makes sense because we're talking about how things are different for this black little girl than they would be for a white little girl and how things are different so it makes sense that it would be different but it just i just was like it's mind-blowing that they wouldn't know how to see something like what is it called Live or mortis. Live or mortis. Thank you. How they wouldn't be able to see something that is such a basic thing when you're talking about a body and telling whether or not it's a murderer and how the body was laying. It's such a, a basic part of that, I would think, that it's crazy that she wouldn't know that not she, any medical examiner at the time, that's not, you know, that's a white person, wouldn't know how to do that on, on all of the bodies and not just some of the bodies. I just thought that was crazy. Well, I think, I think part of that may be, uh, so it's not, not in the film, but it is in the interview uh, with Dr. Carter. I asked what, what her complexion would have been, and she told me probably medium. Okay. Uh, she would get that from what's underneath the sweater because the ex exposed parts of the body would darken, okay. is what she told me. Okay. So if the liver mortis has started the white doctor could if it's matching the other car, uh, colors of the body that is darkened you know they may assume that 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 all occurred at once as opposed to being alive from mortis right right and that does make sense um did you have anything else to no keep no, going still going okay nope. um so we're talking about the evidence in the documentary, Sergeant McGlynn says to you that other things were seized from the crime scene as tested and tested, excuse me, but he falls short of calling anything else evidence. He kind of trails off when he says, but evidence. Uh, do we know what other things might might have been taken? I know I kind of kind of had looked at the pictures before we met today to remind myself, and I saw, you know, there's, there's like a bleach bottle, there's um, a variety of other debris there, uh, there was the board she was lying on. So do we know anything about that, about what he was talking about? Right. I, I don't know specifically. Uh, he did say, like you said, other things were collected. I mean, if if I were an investigator, I, I know I would have collected, especially the leaves with blood on them mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. and the board yeah, that had board, the yeah. blood under the body. So so I, I mean, I don't know if they would still have those. Right. Right. But. And you would you would think that just anything in that area, anywhere you're at, that yeah. area just happens to be leaves and boards. But right. anywhere there's a body, you think that you would just sweep, have like a certain perimeter that you're like, okay, we're going to go 10 feet out or whatever. And you're just, we're going to take it all. Everything right. that's here, we're just going to take it all in. Because really, if they found something there, if you look at the leaves, that's something on here is that one of the women like brushes the leaves off of her. So there's got to be some type of... Touch DNA, DNA and touch absolutely. DNA there. Yeah. Um, 
Absolutely. I'd say that's definitely a cool, big place to look at. Right, absolutely. And then the stuff laying underneath her, too, you know, if, if you know, they mentioned that there was semen on her, like on her leg. She mentioned something about blood dripping down her leg, too. So you would imagine if that stuff is on the outside of her body, maybe it could have run down and maybe it could be on, on some of that stuff, too, on the leaves. Or I think the board was under her back, probably, but. Under her front side. Under her front side. Was, that's yeah, what I meant. Yeah, that's yeah, what I meant. Yeah. Under her body is probably what, how I should have said that. Um, well, well, before before we move on, yeah, you know, because we're, we're speculating Yeah, absolutely. Here. Let's speculate. So if, if I were an investigator, I would chip the paint off of the wall because we don't know if that was her that bumped against it or the arm of the offender. That's true. Or his pants or something like that. So is that suspect DNA or is that her DNA? Absolutely. So. Yes. And in, in the documentary that, I mean, we, you... They talk about it. They talk about it looks. What is it? How does it say? You say that it's that it touched looks versus like it looks like a stamp or stamp versus to me it kind of looked like a brush. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember talking that at that time. Did they say anything about taking that DNA during that time when that happened? They're just like, oh look, it's there, but it's all right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of. Kind of what they say, yeah, yeah. It's, it's on the wall. I'm just assuming if I were a detective, I would have chipped that off of the wall. Yeah, And do you sure. think that even now, let's say it's there, it's on the wall, you could still use that? Not that wall. That wall's torn down. Oh, but. that's true. They did tear it down. <laughs> Duh. Let's say they took it off of there. Right. Yeah. Could you use that just forever if they, like, you know, put it, kept it safe? I can't think of a, you know, scientific term here right now, but kept it safe would you be able to use that, you know, blood after a certain amount of time on a concrete like that? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't even know if a, if a leaf would even still exist now, you know, or how would they preserve that? So, I mean, the paint, like you're saying, the leaf, the board, I mean, could, would it still be around? Right. Just like there's paint. They mentioned the paint. And that's another thing. I don't think they say that anywhere else. The paint that was on... I guess it was on her, and they think it could. It probably came from the knife. The, the green paint. Yes, it, yes. it probably transfer. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, just looking at the pictures, I I didn't see, and again, just the pictures. Right. I didn't see anything that looked green, and this is described as green, not dark yeah. green or anything like this, light green. So I, it, I'm envisioning like Kelly Green in my mind. Of course. You, you know, so. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, I wonder where that came from too. I, I was focused on that earlier because I was like, that's, I don't think, I don't remember hearing that anywhere else in any of the other, and I started to listen, I went back and tried to listen to Crime Junkie, and I listened to part of it, and I was like, okay, I need to finish the documentary and not this, but because of course I'm listening to it knowing it's all wrong, going, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. <laughs> Again, nothing against Crime Junkie. If we had covered this, you know, six months ago, ours would be exactly the same as theirs because the wrong information was just what's there, and it's still there now. If you're not looking at the right sources. Absolutely. And, and the green paint was never out there no. uh, until the day I got the autopsy. And I remember calling Shelby and I'm like, there's a piece of green paint here that I've never heard of before. Like, where is it coming from? You remember that? Next questions. <laughs> yeah. How long was it after, how long after did they tear the building down? Uh, so the, I went by the permit. So the permit said that they could start the uh, deconstruction on October 26, 1999. So that's the actual construction permit for the teardown. Okay. So that's the date I used. So okay. it was sometime after that. Okay. So. But the new building was 
being built and erected before uh, the end of 2000, 2001. Okay. So it would be the right time frame. Yeah, pretty quick. But that's a, a decent amount of time to have still gone into the building and collected any more. Oh, 16 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. And we know what they were back in there because remember in the film, the police got called back out there because they found the gym bag. Right in a further point in the basement, which kind of threw the three room theory out of the, out of the window. So. Right. And the story with that was that they hadn't checked that area or they think that someone came back in there and put that in there. So, uh, both Burgoon and McGlynn, uh, believe it was put in after this crime and because it was found in there uh they just assumed that it went to that and it, it went above burgoon they're like you know I, i'm assuming by the way he talked about it that he got chewed out really bad like did you search for this and he's like he really really did and when i asked mcglynn about it mcglynn's like there's a police report on it so if there's a police report it had to be more to that story about that bag than something right. else but then does that tell us that this is a possible drug drop-off spot. I mean, is yeah. this a known basement for different types of activities? So right. in saying that, does that mean that this little girl could possibly be a message to someone in the neighborhood? Like, right. look, keep playing with me. This can happen to you. Oh, you yeah. know, so. And to your point about, um, you know, Burgoon saying that they searched it and whatever, Burgoon's not an amateur. Mm -mm. I mean, we have, you know, there's... Um, I just was reading an article, so that the next case we're working on, I was kind of telling you about earlier, mentioned an officer that worked on that case, and I recognized the name and was like, I, I know that name. My mom knew him. So I called my brother and was like, did mom know this guy? So anyway, as I'm searching for his name online, trying to figure out how we know him and whatever else, it pulled up an article about Burgoon and talking about how well known he was that they called him the godfather of homicide. Still do. Mm -hmm. I just was like, I didn't realize that. Oh, look at that. Yeah, so, absolutely. you know, they said that when he would come to a scene in the article, it said when he would come to a scene, they would say, you know, oh, well, this will be, we'll be done soon. And they're like, oh, what, we, do we have everything done? And they're like, well, no, Burgoon just got here. So this is going to be solved in no time. Ugh. So, I mean, this and isn't somebody who's just playing around when he goes to the scene. Oh, what He's a heavy thing to carry, stuff. knowing that that's kind of what you're known for and yeah. to still be carrying this. Yeah. And, that, and that plays into this. Some, some of the other detectives involved in this over the years that I spoke to told me that the, the day of the scene, the reason that the two boys weren't even looked at, really, is because Burgoon got there and told the police, okay, they stayed, they told us about it, they're not who we're looking for. Right. And they just took them at that, like, hey, Burgoon said it, they're not involved. Now, don't get me wrong. They provided samples and were oh, questioned later. But, but yeah, it, that just speaks to your point. Whatever yeah. Bagoon said, they, they believed. Yeah, so. he's got those instincts. He knows what he's doing. So I, so I highly doubt he would just be like, oh, look, we missed a duffel bag right there in the corner uh, yeah. of the room. You know? And he's a good guy, too. Like he, To this day, he calls me like every two weeks just, just to keep up. So. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Look at that nice relationship that yeah. came out of that, too. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, we already talked about that. So my next thing is about the isotope testing. So I'm like jumping Keep around going. a little bit. You're, You're good. good. Okay. Uh, so I also wanted to know: Have police given any thoughts on why the isotope testing was so inconsistent between the different labs? I know you had a theory, and I would love for you to tell everybody your theory. So uh, we didn't. I didn't really get into 
the isotope testing with the police only because they're the recipient of that information. So anything they're telling me, I don't think they would have an actual answer for why it was so different. Gotcha. My theory uh, is that if you look at the two sources, one being uh, University of North Texas, which is Southern, uh, every state that they chose was linear to where they're at. And uh, the Smithsonian, every state that they chose was across from where they were at. So I was wondering if there were, what they were cleaning their supplies with were the water samples in that same area or something. Was there something that, that caused that effect uh, right. for it to be so for Like there's no two states that even cross right. In, right. in those. So, so I was wondering what the the cleaning process was gotcha. in those and areas. You said um, the University of North Texas, the area that they had, though, was kind of the right area where they think she was from, right? Yes, well, so, well, some of the states, yeah. So it's sure. also possible that theirs was correct and that the Smithsonian had something that messed up their sample or whatever as well. Oh, true. I, I, would, I would say yes, but possibly no. Uh, and the only reason I say that, and again, just conversation, yeah. is because the Mississippi River goes through both of them. That's true. So, and as we know, you know, from science class, you, you know, minerals travel down the river. So right. is, is the isotopes minerals that came from the north, and is that what possibly threw them off? As well as in 1982, St. Louis was hit by a huge snowstorm. Mm -hmm. I remember being eight years old, and it, I felt like it was up to my shoulders, you know what I mean? And that had to melt, and those settlements had to go into the water. And where did they go? Is that the transfer of, of those elements south? Right. right, right. That's a really good point. Do you know? I, you know, I didn't even think to look this up. I probably would have been a good thing to look up. Is isotope testing generally a pretty accurate thing? You know, in uh, I'll say the isotope testing universities put it out there and everything that they release that is very accurate, mm -hmm. but in other technologies that's used, uh, I don't think it's as solid of uh, evidence. I think it's more like, yeah, it's pretty good. It can get better is, okay. is, is my feel, gotcha. how people feel about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I can honestly say I, I've seen it wrong more than I've seen it right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But it, at least it is a science that kind of narrows down like we're not looking at Washington or Oregon or anything. So. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the case with a lot of things too. Like, um, I was just reading something the other day that you know they're saying fingerprinting now isn't as isn't as sure as they once thought it was, or um, gunshot residue. You know, I I feel like that used to be like the like one of the things you know, and now it's right. like most most places don't even do gunshot residue testing in a lot of cases, right. which we've we've seen in a couple of cases. Right. So those things change so much. Maybe it's something too that they're finding. Maybe it wasn't as accurate as before, or right. something that we will. Find I think later they knew. I think they knew that before though yeah. with, with the fingerprints because it wasn't it Alcatraz that had uh, uh, similar f uh, fingerprints for two prisoners. Oh, I don't know. I don't know that one. Yeah. I don't either. Yeah, I, I believe so. I'm going to look it up. From like 1925, okay. there were two prisoners with, with, like they thought it was the same person, mm -hmm. uh, but it was two different prisoners. So oh. I mean, it's got to happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With all the fingerprints and all the things, it's somewhere. Right. You have a fingerprint doppelganger hiding. I just hope that she's a librarian <laughs> goes to bed early. <laughs> All right. 
Okay, so the most exciting part of the documentary, in my opinion, uh, as someone who does genealogy, was when Sergeant McGlynn told you that CeCe Moore from Parabon Nanolabs is on the case. Uh, for anyone that's listening that hasn't heard of CeCe, I urge you to watch The Genetic Detective on the ABC Channel app. I think there's only like six episodes. It's pretty cool to watch. Uh, she's incredible. How did it feel when McGlynn told you that you could call them and they had permission to speak with you about the case and you were the first person getting that information? Uh, I'll say this. Uh, I haven't said this before, but I will say it. So I knew a year before that they had DNA. Okay. But I was told that I couldn't put that information out there unless my research led me that way. So I finally got some information that led me that way, so I wanted to pursue it. But it, it sorry if I cuss, but it blew my fucking mind. Oh, yeah, you be, say that word a be, lot. Sorry. <laughs> because, <laughs> be, because I didn't even ask him that. I ne that was not even a thought of mine that they would talk to me i was just trying to get to the point that yes it is being worked right and when when he said yeah you might want to reach out to him so if you watch the film i do something in the film purposely so as he's saying that i just cut him off i do that purposely <laughs> i leave him talking instead of fading him out because i just want to show like at this point i want to talk to them not you anymore right. <laughs> you know so, so, but, but uh yeah yeah he 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 blew my mind it it, I, it felt amazing now what what he was telling me i didn't have that information he was giving me new information but i knew that they had uh some type of genealogy in the works okay and i knew it was with parabon uh because my questions arose initially were they doing the uh the pheno testing mm -hmm. to get a face right so that's how the questioning began yes and i'm like uh are they and he told me no because under 14 years old it's not reliable faces are rounder it, the mm -hmm. shape may be wrong and they don't want to put the wrong face out there now they're starting everything all the oh, way over right. again Absolutely. and that's when he leaned into me and said that they they gave me permission to talk to him which I didn't even ask for, so it was a, it was an amazing feeling. It really was. Like, where do you go from there? Right. Like, like, I don't You're even like, have okay, questions. That's the point when I just start jumping up and down, screaming. Like, right. oh, I'm sorry. Let me sit back down for my interview. <laughs> oh, there were there were points like that that, that we had. <laughs> Shelby was there for that interview. Oh yeah, it made me really excited. Yeah, especially when you start taking pictures and stuff. Oh my god, he was excited. <laughs> Okay, so I want to come back to the pictures he was taking because that reminded me of something else I want to ask. But before I do that, did CC say anything further about the DNA testing that wasn't included in the documentary that you can talk about? Yes, she did, and no, that I could talk about. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you guys, if you're if you again haven't seen the documentary yet um, and haven't listened to the other episode yet, which what the hell are you doing? Press pause and go do those things. Um, they, but let's 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 cover what she did talk yes, about yes, though. Yes, absolutely. So they so she found that first of all she's gotten close matches um, in in the DNA testing. So when you submit your DNA, they can find like cousins and things and distant matches, you know, pretty far out. But when they find the matches, they can do what's called genetic genealogy. So they're going to take this person, person A in this case, Hope, and they're going to build your tree backward your family tree so they're going to go back as many generations as they need to to figure out how this person is connected so for example if they find a first cousin then you're going to go back to your great-grandparents 
I don't think that's right, a second cousin, you go back to your great-grandparents. And then when they go back to those great-grandparents, they're going to work their way forward to try to figure out who Hope's parents are, who her family is, and where she's come from. With Hope, as Cece mentioned, they're running into the issue of slavery, and that's throwing off where the family lines go, where people were born, who they were born to, and things like that. Right. Yes. Uh, before I even say that, when, when I met you two ladies at our presentation, uh, you actually helped me explain that to everybody that was in the room. So, so yeah, so you did a great job on that as well. But, yes. Thanks. Uh, so in trying to build the tree forward mm-hmm. is where they're running into the problem because they can only go back to what they have in slavery. Right. However, like you said, they do have relatives. It's just they don't feel like those relatives are close enough to know who this little girl was right. or quite possibly she was raised not by her biological in-laws at all, biological family at all, maybe an in-law that was married into the family or something like that where she's just not genetically connected to it. And if that is, yeah, absolutely. If that's the case, then they're kind of lost because you may find that, that relative that's close, but not even know who she was because they didn't know she was adopted out or anything like that. That can make it so hard. We have that in our family tree. Not the murder part, but the the connections where you're going, how the hell is this person connected? Who is this? Um, They also... Cece speculated that the person who did this to uh, Hope was a family member. So does Dr. Carter. And Dr. Carter thinks that as well. Yeah, and McGlynn and... Pretty much everybody. Yeah. I mean, it would make sense. If you're not reporting a child missing, then what's happening? Is that what leads all of them to believe that? Is there something else that goes along with that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you guys could see the He was like, I will talk to you about it as soon as it's solved. Thank you. <laughs> they have had some close matches, but she said that they don't really want to communicate with the police. Well, one ghosted her, mm-hmm. and then one said, don't ever call me again. Right. Yeah, true. But but again, I, I do want to say, because I've, I've heard people talk about the film uh, on other podcasts, and that isn't an admission of guilt. No. We, do, we don't know what's happening in that person's family or has Absolutely. happened in their life Absolutely. that their trust level isn't there. I mean, look at the experiments throughout history that's been done on African Americans. You know, so I mean... They could be feeling like, like, is this an experiment on me or, right. or, or anything? So, yeah. I mean, her trust level isn't confident enough. And we also have to remember that Cece says, because this gets overlooked by people that talk about the film, but she clearly says that when she calls people up until now, she has not been able to tell them that it's because of the St. Louis Jane Doe. Right. All she says is an unidentified uh, child that they're looking for. So you automatically, well, you call me, this child's dead. Right. No, right. You, you, you know what I mean? So, I mean, how would you feel? I Absolutely. mean, could it quite possibly be my brother? Like, I, I, I don't I know. Mean, I mean, I would feel differently, but I'm also a white woman. So I have the privilege of feeling a very different way than a black woman would feel when she's contacted by someone to say they're working with the police. I mean, my outlook on that is totally different mm-hmm. because of, of the life that I've had had the chance to live. Absolutely. So, it makes sense that that would be there. Mm-hmm. I get the frustration, too, because you're like, come on, just help, please. But also, you have to get that that's where that comes from. Right. And is that a road that can be taken again? You know, maybe CC doesn't contact her, but maybe, again, the police could contact her and some, what's the word, anonymity? No, is that the word? Yeah. 
anonymity? Yeah. She stays right? anonymous? Yeah, and <laughs> yes. Um, and maybe would be interested in helping out yeah. with that part in the future because she could just be a huge key. Right. Or not at all. Right. Well, I hope she sees the film absolutely. and puts two and two together and can yes. reach back out if she's willing to do so. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So. If she feels yep. safe to do that, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And then uh, also part of what CC was saying is, is that we know the two sides of the family. So one comes by way of Alabama through Memphis, okay. and the other comes out of a northeastern part of Texas. Okay. It's just her problem, uh, and again, this is me paraphrasing what she told me, so if I'm off a little bit, I do apologize, but her problem is going back on both of those and making the connection forward. Right. So where do these two meet? Right. You know, so that that's, but we do know Northeast Texas and uh, Alabama by way of Memphis. Right. And so if, you're, if your family is from those areas and you feel comfortable doing your DNA, um, you can submit your DNA to any like Ancestry or any of those. Then once you get that DNA back, you can download that raw profile and then you go to GED, uh, GEDmatch, GEDmatch, I don't know, either way, and GEDmatch.com. And then you would upload that raw DNA to their site. And then there's a box that you can check as you're filling out your information that says that to allow police to use your DNA for cases, okay? So you have to check that box to do that. So if you submit through Ancestry, police cannot look at your DNA. That's not how it works. If you submit through 23andMe, they can't look at your DNA. You have to submit it to this other thing, and you have to say it's okay for them to do it. So make sure if you want to do that and you think this could be your family or you just want to see if you can help, that's how you can do it if you feel comfortable and safe doing that. So, yeah. Um, and also, this is back to the other, you mentioned um, the family and, you know, it's not an admission of guilt. In my own family, that happened. And again, there's not a murder involved, but sorry, I just stepped, up, oh, I stepped on your chair, not your foot. Um, we have a cut. So I, uh, very, very long story, found who my biological father was in 2020. And we had a, this random cousin that we, you know, we figured out everybody else's connection. And I had this first cousin that I'm like, well, who the hell is this guy? I don't know how he's related. Nobody else can figure it out. So I try to message him. He's not answering. He doesn't see the message. I guess he's not on Facebook a lot. And we finally get in contact with him probably a couple months later and talk to him and we kind of figure out how he's connected and it's a really sad story and I don't want to give his information out but basically his mom was adopted didn't know her family and it's she's somehow related to my biological father's family once we spoke with him and we were like trying to figure it out and talking with him he ghosted us and took his DNA out so we oh, have wow. no idea what happened there is no murder none of that happened it's just for whatever reason, he I think he maybe just decided, you know what, maybe I'm not ready for this. Mm -hmm. He took his DNA out of there. So it could be anything. It doesn't have to be, like you said, it doesn't have to be, well, she's guilty or she knows something. It could right. just be she's not comfortable or she's not ready. So We also have to take the, the sign of the times and the community uh, in as well. Because I can remember in the 80s and, and 90s, a lot of people saying, oh, that's my play sister or my play cousin. Mm -hmm. you know. So there, there's families that's being created mm -hmm. just based upon being close to each other and not necessarily blood related right so. yeah absolutely uh, okay so I can't remember if it was in the documentary or if you discussed this in the library oh, we just said that never mind <laughs> just talk about that um, 
that was, you know, about her not being reported missing and if it was a family member involved. And I just forgot that I had it right there in front of me because I was so ahead of myself. So one of the biggest bombshells in the documentary, which came from Sergeant Brian McGlynn, is that proof exists that the sweater and the rope were not only mailed back, but were actually received and signed for at the police department. So did they share any thoughts on what could have happened to them once they got signed for? Uh, did not too many there, but in talking to other police officers and other agencies, uh, I can just tell you a meeting I had just this past Sunday night, uh, those particular people told me that they believe it's, it's probably still in that building somewhere and just not searched for. And I think listening to you, you, you too, you, you wanted to volunteer to go yes, look as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. So if y'all are listening, we're in. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. I'll just, I just got to tell my husband, watch my kids. That's it. We'll, we'll search. Yeah. But, uh, so uh, Ty Dennis, who, who was a, a great resource of mine, he, he's in the film. He's the gentleman that was the gang detective from Atlanta. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> so as an officer, he said that a lot of times people working in the mailroom aren't even police. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're, that's what they do. They process things. So they don't have the same connection with those items or even where they go. They'll sign for it, set it in a particular area, and then, you know, whether it's picked up or not. In mm -hmm. uh, Again, speaking to who I spoke to Sunday, uh, that particular person was an uh, officer for 30 years in Chicago, and he said, with this being a major case out of St. Louis during that era, it's a high probability, high probability, not the truth, mm -hmm. but a high probability that some of those items maybe got taken by police as, as like souvenirs, like, hey, I worked on this case from then. I like I had never even thought of that till no. he told me that. So like like the old cases like the Black Dahlia and stuff, you know, taking a, a section of their clothing and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we hear about officers having stuff in their home, right. you know, uh, to this day. Like, wasn't it in the movie Mississippi Burning about the true story where the, the judge still had the gun? Uh, in his, in his den or something oh like that gosh. that they were able to link to it. So, I mean, I mean, it does happen. Yeah, there's so. uh, there's one, I can't remember who it is now. She's incredible. Uh, there's one that has like the handcuffs that they used to, to handcuff the guy. I think they killed a family member or attacked her maybe or something, I don't know. She has them like hung up on her wall. <laughs> mm. But uh, yeah, yeah, that, uh, well, you were there, Shelby. What, what did you feel about that? About him taking pictures and stuff. I thought it was cool. <laughs> no, she's yeah. back on the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's where I was going to go next because we talked about the sweater and stuff. And you mentioned McGlynn is in the documentary. You can see him taking pictures of the stuff when you found the sweater. And uh, obviously very impressed that you were able to find this sweater. How did you do that? Uh, well, again, it wasn't an overnight process. Mm -hmm. But... but uh, so I started with uh, I want to know like a thought I want to know what this looked like, I really do. So I just I really just started with a search online with pictures and matching up pictures and everything. So after about three weeks, I kind of narrowed it down. Mm -hmm. So the the sweater where the confusion comes in is just terminology through the years. So it's actually for that time called a Orlon sweater. Okay which is a acrylic sweater. So I didn't know, again, this is just the research I, I was doing. Yeah. So I didn't know V-necks were created in the 1960s and that they weren't appropriate for women until the mid 80s. So that led me in a direction away from what I was originally looking for. 
But then when you're thinking about a woman wearing the sweater, the question comes in, why is there not an undershirt with the sweater as well? So again, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm back to a men's sweater. Uh, and looking in there, I'm about three months down the road, and believe it or not, uh, a picture just popped up that just matched up, lined up. So I went to Etsy, and I bought the sweater. So I get the sweater in, and it's it, it it's the sweater. Everything matches up, you know. Yeah. If, if I cut the label out, that all matches up. So I had I bought multiple sweaters because I wanted to cut the label out to make sure everything lined up. But I also wanted that pure sample. But it's great because when I meet with police, the the first half hour is always why are you why are you doing this? Why you you know they're always vetting me. But when I pull the sweater out, the conversation just shifts like yeah. a whole different direction. And, <laughs> and you know, he, he was shocked by that because he, he didn't know I had that. And, and I had met with a couple of cops before with the same thing. Like, I met with one. I can't say his name. But uh, when I pulled it out, he didn't even want to touch it. He's just, like, like, looking at it like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? But McGlynn, when we were done with the whole interview, McGlynn says, do you mind if I take pictures of that sweater? And I said, as long as you don't mind us taking pictures of you, he's like, fuck it, go ahead. <laughs> he's like, sure can, I'll take a picture of you taking a picture. Yeah, because I, th I thought that was a great, like, I could see that being in the film at that mm -hmm. point, you know, because that was like validation, you, you know what I mean? 100%. And then he later, uh, I may have mentioned it to you before, but when we did the, we, we did a release for, for him so he could see it on the big screen and everything. And he told me that he, he genuinely believes that that is the sweater. I mean, it looks like the same sweater. It definitely. It's, it's got to be the same yeah. sweater. And it wasn't just me, too. Like, I, there were three manufacturers that I worked with that helped me with the stitching and the way that it would be lined up. And again, none of them charged me any money. It wasn't like they'd look at it, give me something right back. It was through emails and stuff like right. that. So that's why we kind of decided on possibly being a, a the medium because of the stitching underneath the arm, which the direction it went. So, but. That's awesome that they were able to tell all those things and were willing to help. Just a nice little reminder that that still exists. There are still Absolutely. people that care about justice and making the right things happen and right. doing well, the right thing. The same thing with the rope. Like, I, I did it with the rope, too. So I went, uh, I spoke with, again, uh, I won't say I went. I didn't fly anywhere or anything. But through, through conversations and emails, uh, not tying uh, groups and uh, military people, and they all told me there's no ties there, that it's just lashings around over and over. So mm -hmm. I think that was key, yeah. too. So, like, with the, with the, I think what's key in the wording so this is something you all could catch up on. They specifically say it's a ski braid water type rope. So the reason with it being lashings, it's key, is because on a ski braided rope at the end, there's a, like a circle that's connected into the rope. Mm -hmm. well, if you're not tying knots, you're using that portion around one of the wrists and then doing the lashing. So that's, that's how you know that it's a ski braided rope because of that ending. Okay. And then um, something about the rope, so the police told me uh, later after the interview and everything and uh, something that they knew from the beginning, but they always thought it would lead them to where the rope was and it just have it has it through time. So don't quote me on the numbers here, but they're around this. So that particular rope needs to be spun at 153 or so threads. But 
the one that was on the little girl was one thread sh short. Mm -hmm. So it was like 152, or, or if the numbers are 154, 153, it's one short. Mm -hmm. So they always assumed that if they could find the manufacturer that was spinning one short of everybody else, then they would know where that rope came from. And it just, it, it, it never came out for them, so. Gotcha. And when we're speaking about that, where is, like, we talk a little bit more about the sweater and the rope and why that's not in their possession anymore. Oh, yeah. Because of the being mailed off. Right, or, right. Yeah. And we talked about that well, a little bit the first time, um, but I can't remember, too. Was that normal for that time, to just take an entire, all the evidence, really, that you mostly have right. and just giving it all away? Okay, so this happened in 1983. The show Sightings uh, was released in 1994. Right. So the filming, not really recall, was either late 93, early 94. This was released in uh, November 20th, 1994 on sightings. And uh, so in 1994, was that the norm? I'm not sure. But again, you're 11 years removed from a crime where you've had no breaks and you're trying to get national coverage and a TV show ask you, let's put it on, what does it hurt? Right. You know, and again, DNA, we got to remember DNA. And even from your podcast, you said it wasn't used till 85 mm -hmm. for the first uh, case actually to exonerate somebody. Yeah. This is only eight years after that. So how many right. times has it been used? What's, right. what's the police knowledge of this DNA or whatever? Could they have, could they have sent a, a portion of the sweater? Uh, what effect would that have on the TV show? Right. If I send a section of rope that's an inch as right. opposed to the whole rope. So we got to remember, this is a production. This is a presentation. This isn't for just a psychic reading. Right. So you're not going to just, you're not going to bring Will Smith's toenail. You're going <laughs> to let Will Smith do the play. You right. know what I mean? Right. So, <laughs> so but that's kind of. I like that. <laughs> Are you are you pretty much done with yep, the questions, questions that so you're asking? Okay. Well, I, I do want to say this. Yes, so when yes. the uh, so when he says what what you told me that you know I got the receipt where yeah. she mailed it back or mailed yeah. something back, it like literally, I, and I say this every time because I have to because you guys don't know. Like the light bulb didn't go off in my head; it like shattered, and it's it, like as he's talking to me, I'm really sitting here thinking like. You know you can't tell me that. Like, why are you? Why are you telling me that? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean. But when I asked him at the end, because Shelby will tell you, I, I literally after that, uh, my next question was, can I use that? Because I had spoken early on, like I said, to to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and they told me, hey, you're developing a good relationship with the police. You don't want to put anything out there that's going to jeopardize that, especially if you want to do this moving forward. Right. And I understood that. So if he told me. I couldn't use it. I wasn't going to use it. Absolutely. I probably would have hinted to it or something like that, but I wasn't going to use it. But honestly, to his credit, he does want to solve this because he said he yeah. just said, you know what, it, it's time. Yeah. You know, it's time that people know. Yeah, and you can so. see he's he's trying to take a different approach. This hasn't been the approach so far. You know, it's been uh, CC's had it for eight years, and they didn't say anything till now. He's he's like, okay, it's time to put the, our cards on the table. I think that's great. That's what it needs. You need something different. What you've been doing isn't working. It's time to try something new. And 
it, it, I have a feeling. I just have a really good feeling it's going to happen soon. Absolutely. And, I, and I'll say this, too. I haven't said this on any other podcast or anything. This is the truth, though. So uh, St. Louis Police was wanting to put a lot of this information out there because after our interview was over, uh, he said something to the effect. I, I don't have the words verbatim, but he was like, you know, uh, I won't name names, but uh, this reporter is going to be upset. That reporter is going to be upset. He said, we have offered to the press to follow the steps to get the interview and we'll give you an interview. And no press agency followed those steps because this wasn't just a, hey, talk to me. You know, I had I had to send something to the St. Louis Media Department and then I had to get approved by a certain level. Then the chief had to sign off on it by checking, I'm assuming with the mayor because they had a different mayor at that time. Mm -hmm. And then, so it was a process before we got to McGlynn. And it was crazy because while I'm waiting on the phone call, I get a call from McGlynn, okay, we can schedule it. And then I got the email the next day saying I could schedule it, but he had, he had already got the approval, you know, right. everything. but, but yeah, it was, it wasn't overnight, but, but he, he did say no other agency just followed what needed to happen to make right. that happen. And incredible that you did. I mean, these people, this is, this is their job that they've been doing for how long now? And they were like, nah, we're not going to do that. And then you were like, no, we're going to, I, this case seems to be solved. I'm going to do it. Yeah. It's just awesome. So awesome. Well, I appreciate that, but really, it's my, it was my first documentary, so I, I just thought that's what you had to do. So I'm like, right. okay, let's do but it. But I mean, those people, like, you know that's what you need to do. Right, true. And true. they were like, nah, that's all right. I'm just going to write about this other thing over here. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, a little bit we talked about um, the murder weapon. So no murder weapon collected, but there was, that we know of. Oh, Could have been anywhere in that area, maybe. But I know we talked about botanical gardens and doing some testing because she had mold, and there was it was contaminated with animal product. Yes. Um, how reliable did you feel like botanical gardens findings were compared to? Like, does that seem all correct? What they found? Well. Uh clarification there yeah. uh so the the mold report is uh always said to be done through botanical gardens and i don't dispute that fact it probably was but the report is actually labeled st louis university and taking a step back and talking to uh dr case she said she worked for st louis university but she worked at the uh the st louis morgue so that could be the same thing at the botanical garden that the actual researchers worked for at the university but was at the botan bot botanical garden uh that finding wasn't known either i remember when it uh so about a year and a half in i'm like i need to see this damn mold report so i, I called mcglynn he's like i need to see that damn thing too i don't, I don't know where it's at I've, I've never seen it he said i'm not saying we didn't have it it could have walked off through the years it could have disintegrated because a lot of this is paper at this time so he's like I, I just haven't seen it so i contacted uh the medical examiner who who i, I had to talk to the year previous and uh i asked was there anything else in the file that i could get i do know there's x-rays but I, I couldn't i couldn't get those but um 
So she told me there's no there's no mold report. But then she sent me an email right back and told me, well, hold on. There's still somebody that works here that's getting ready to retire. She was here in 83. Let me ask her if she knows anything about a mold report. So then Monday comes and I get an email uh, telling me to go ahead and, and send the $5 for the mold report that the, the even though it wasn't in the report, the lady remembered where it was and went and got it and gave it to her, but now it's back in their file. So I paid the money. I got the report. I actually got the report on the afternoon. I interviewed Dr. Carter that morning and got the report like at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. So it was all the same day. And um, I just thought that was amazing because if she retired, who knows if that report, if right. they would even know where it went. And how did you remember after what's a decades? Right. You, you know, <laughs> the meeting I had on Sunday uh, with the people I told you about, I, I asked that guy the same question. I'm like, that that is amazing. And he said, but again, because it's probably one of the cases of the century, yeah. you don't forget stuff like right. that, yeah, you, you know, true. especially that time. You, you know what I mean? But to answer your question, yes. Uh, so the Mo report clearly says that. Uh, the mo which is which is odd because so Dr. K sa says she's told the press throughout years that it's it's clean cut and it does say clean cut at one point but it looks like she's referring to the skin that was cut because she also says there's striation marks on the uh, spine itself so how is it clean if there's striation marks I so she her assumption was a serrated knife. A lot of people put out carving knife. It's never been put out there really that it was a carving knife. People just kind of the newspaper picked a big knife, and uh, but Dr. Carter again before I got the mold report said that she believed maybe they were hack marks as opposed to striation marks, and it's something heavier like a, a hatchet is what she believed. Okay. So then I get the mold report that afternoon, and it clear it clearly says this could quite possibly be a hatchet and that the the hatchet uh whatever the instrument was had previously been used to cut animal fat because the mold that's growing on the neck has uh, parts of it that only grow in animal meat so so we know it's a butcher instrument of some sort. It could be I'm not saying it's a butcher, but it right, could be like right. a hunting knife yeah, or yeah, something that like that. That was the first thing I thought mm -hmm. of too. What a, a huge knife. day for you though <laughs> to do that interview and then get that mold report and have it say what she's saying. I mean, wow. Yeah, it was it was a lot. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, again, like I, like we talked about before, that happened all throughout this case. Right. Like like I, I genuinely believe. There was a guided hand helping me. Like I know I told you that ladies before because that made me make me a, a little emotional because it was uh just the order was amazing because had I did the interviews in reverse order, I wouldn't know what questions to ask right. the next person. It just fell in line. Uh well I gather myself, tell them about what happened at Washington Cemetery to prove my oh, point. Okay, to prove the point, we were with our other person we're working with, Romeo. That's, um, that's Lee. That's Lee. Uh, that's why I was confused. I'm not sure what name you guys know. But we were working with him and we were trying to just get video of the way the cemetery looks because if you drive past it, it doesn't look like a cemetery. Right. So um, we couldn't find her gravesite because the cemetery is just so, uh, the grass is growing over the uh, gravestones. And some of them are broken. Some of them you can't even tell the writing on there. And so 
we were getting ready to leave. So Romeo said, hey, let me see if this, this guy was cutting grass. He said, let me go check over there and ask him if he knows anything. So he goes to ask him. He comes back and says, hey, this guy was there. He knows where it is. Let's go see. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> we, kind of, we were like, uh, we and, don't and know. He, and, and he was one of the volunteers to dig her yeah, up. Yeah, he, he, he even said he was one of the volunteers. So we were kind of like, man, we don't know. This is true. So we go over there to see, and there it is, her gravestone. He right. went right to it. Um, yeah. So he gave us a so his interview and that's Freddie Jefferson in there is is just because we were at the cemetery the same day he was cutting the grass, right. really. And and then when I get home that night, I try to vet everything. How can I prove this actually happened? So the first picture I open up in the newspaper, Freddie standing right there in the middle. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> so I mean, and, and and again, I'm sorry I got emotional on that no, part, get but emotional. it just it uh <laughs> that's what we do. It just it just <laughs> fell in line. I mean. It really it did. It, yeah. it it couldn't have happened. Like Eric, so so again, me and Eric have known each other thirty years at least, back till ninety one, ninety two. Right. You know, and, and never once, even though it affected us both differently, it uh, we never talked about the case. I mean, it just wasn't something that came up. Yeah. And then so I put on Facebook, uh, when the, like the day I started, like, hey, does anybody remember this case? Mm-hmm. And he messaged me. He said, you talking about the little girl on the west side? And I'm like. Yeah, I'm like, do you know it? And he's like, dude, I was there. Like, I was ten, but I was there. So I'm like, it was just crazy. Like, and then like with him, uh, and there's video on my page of this. So Eric has stated uh, that being ten years old, there, but his he he was either nine or ten. I think ten. But his birthday's the next day. So March first is his birthday. So this is the day before his birthday. So. The first time in his life he's ever heard of the word nylon was when one of the police officers was coming out of the building saying she had nylon rope on her hands. So until he got to a certain age where, but he associated that word nylon with that rope on that little oh girl's hand. Oh my goodness. You know, so imagine having that for at least a few years in your right. life, you know, so Ugh. yeah, it's, it's crazy. So we talk about like after they found her and they start, you know, they sent letters out to the local schools looking. And then how far out did that go from there? Is this in the whole country? Yeah. uh, So nationwide, uh, the original list they got of I I do. I do want to clarify this because a lot of podcasts. and again, I think I said on the last one, I don't want to beat up YouTubers or podcasts. I just right. want the the correct information out. Absolutely. Not to point fingers, but because there's been so much wrong over the years. Yeah. But they didn't search for every missing kid in America. They searched for African-American girls between 8 and 11, maybe a year or two either direction. But... They were searching for African-American children, so they, right. they, they weren't searching everywhere. So it is a huge list, yes. but it's not like you hear people say, like, they found every kid in America or anything like that. So, right. But, yeah, so they did shoot those out nationwide, but the search, I would say, probably, probably out this far, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Saint Peter's, and again, probably equally around. And then other than that, it would just be bulletins and stuff like that asking. But like physically going, it would have probably been out at least this far. Yeah. So then I think there was a website that we talked about. Um, so like we'll say that's that's you know nationwide African American girls that age. But is that going to go to all of the police departments? Does that go to the schools? Does that go to the police department? Is it something that they have to specifically go to a certain website? and look at well, the, well this kind of pre-internet though so not a website but well, i believe burgoon says that that all that information is stored with the state police okay so they get the list from the state police yeah. and and uh, mcglynn says that they uh, he actually found boxes of the the old folded uh computer paper with the rails and stuff like that oh, okay print printouts from other places in the country that had reported those but for st louis it came from the state police i totally forgot about those kinds of printers they were a pain in the ass oh yeah. i remember that so with so the green and green and white aligned <laughs> paper. stupid paper would go off of the thing and yeah Sorry. So then now, um, maybe we talked about it as of now, that there is like a main website that can be used that the t- police departments can access. Are you thinking like VICAP? Is that what you're is thinking Is that what of? I'm thinking so of? So VICAP is, but it's for um, like criminal offenses. So they would put things in there like, in this case, they would put in there that they have a victim. This is the victim type. This is how she was killed. And then they're looking for other cases that match that so that they can detect people like Samuel Little who are going from state to state committing these crimes, and that's why they're not getting caught. So that's what VICAP is and, for. And VICAP was created in 85, Burgoon said, and, and she was the first St. Louis case put in mm-hmm. to VICAP. Okay. So this is pre, pre-VICAP. Mm-hmm. That must have been what I was getting at. Yeah, thinking. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and then now is that something that's used well now? Uh, you you know no I I mean Burgoon and all of the officers said especially at that time that departments just weren't willing to share information like like it would be be hard for him to talk to Saint Anne if they had a missing kid that close but simply because they wanted to be the ones to solve it you, you know they didn't want that help and their experience level probably wasn't the same as Burgoon's so you, in in and again this is my just my thought imagine. I'm working in Olivet. I get a murder of a kid, and then I get a call from the godfather of homicide. I'm not going to give him the information. He's like, you're not going to come in and be the hero of my case. You, right. you, you know right. what I mean? So there could have been some intimidation level of, of him, like, right. like how massive of a personality he was. Like, right. like I mean, that the article if it was the recent one you pulled up like he just retired and they did an article on him like six months ago and he's still called the godfather yeah that was i think i think it was from january of last year maybe mm -hmm. yeah that's what it's that's literally like the title of the article is the godfather of homicide and see that what was funny about that so whatever that date is i do know this so we interview him and then he interviews for that the Friday of that week. We were like Monday or Tuesday. Yeah, and so that same week, he did that other interview. Oh, my God. So. He told us about it in the interview. Yeah, yeah, he said he was doing it. Yeah, it's crazy, like, even even that day on the interview. So we, uh, so he, at the time, he was working part-time at uh, St. Louis County Police, so we had to go out to Clayton to meet with him and everything. And, you know, he, he he's an elderly man, but he's still mobile and everything. So he meets us at the door. He's trying to carry the equipment. No. <laughs> he's like, like no, let me no, grab no, no. that, let me grab <laughs> like he was, he was, he was on the go. I mean, he, great, great personality. I, I think that comes out 
in there too, because uh, like like especially what one scene I really love is when he's talking about the psychics and they told him that the head was in the Gulf of Mexico and he just starts laughing like, "Who are you gonna call about that?" You know what I mean? Like, uh, he's a great great guy. I mean, really a great guy. And he just he just retired like three weeks ago. Oh really? So, yeah, just retired. Oh. So congratulations. Yes. And then if, if we got time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. I, I just look, wanted to look, say. we're going to be here until they tell us it's time to leave right now. <laughs> we have a good job. Yeah, I do, I do want to say that, uh, you, you know, uh, Leroy Atkins just died yes. the weekend before last. So, you know, just, just RIP to him and his family. Yes, and, and so. for anyone who doesn't know, Leroy Atkins was the captain at the time of the murder, right? So just so you guys know where that name fits in. And if you don't know, then you need to go watch the documentary, and then you'll know. But sending our love to their family, to his family. Do you have any other questions? I'm good. I think I'm good. Do you have some more? Yes. What else do you think that our listeners need to know? Is there anything we didn't cover because, you know, last time the conversation got away from us and we still missed two things at (laughs) least. So, Uh, I guess we know we could cover Noreen a little deeper. Absolutely. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about Noreen. All right, so uh, how that all broke down? I'm sure you could edit it the way you want to or whatever. So how it broke down was uh, Noreen. So a lot of a lot of I don't I don't want to keep saying podcasters and YouTubers keep doing and it, stuff. Go. go ahead, say but it. but they didn't even know who the psychic was. Right. So they just say oh show sightings, but didn't know the psychic. So I, I, it was. Uh, Noreen Rainier and uh, I called her up I sent her an email first she was like absolutely I'd help so I called her up we talked on the phone she sends me an email saying I'd love to help if you can send me the items then I had to email her back like uh, you have the items and she said no no I don't have the items or whatever and then she wanted so all of her memories or whatever it is she keeps in a book so she has logs and logs of everything she's done and that particular one is missing so i had to send her to show sightings and she told me okay well i did it for a show so they kept all my notes because it was part of their show uh but i remember that i gave it to the production assistant to send it back is what she told me originally Mm -hmm. so i'm like okay i believe her you know i'm telling the staff and everything i'm like i i I believe her i really think the way she told me and she's up in age too and uh then my assistant researcher who helped uh on the second half of the film um which is meriwether she finds an article dated in 1991 where uh, Noreen says that people send her stuff, she doesn't ask for it, and she just throws it in her closet, which led me to one of the detectives on this case once told me, hey, I wanted to go down and just search her closet. So now I'm thinking, oh, fuck, it's in her closet. So I call her back, and I'm like, Noreen, uh, where is it? Is it in your closet? No, I promise you I sent it back. And she declined, she declined the interview. I do think part of it was she felt over the years kind of disrespected, but at the same time, it it... it it wasn't helping her right. to really keep saying the same thing. Like I, I sent it back, right. you, you know right. what I mean. So, uh, and she's been kind of catching hell for it this whole time. I mean, since '94. Thinking that this person didn't send this stuff back, then people are, I'm sure, talking all kinds of shit this whole time. Oh right, and Absolutely. then they think that's the only reason. This is the yeah. only holdup because of you. Nothing right. else yeah. is getting figured out. Right, and if you go online, people say, "Well, well, the did the psychic do it?" And oh. she asked for the material to come oh, back. Can wrong. you imagine? <laughs> oh my god! You can really see. 
see that, especially on uh, web sleuths, yeah. uh, stuff like that. It, it, it's crazy. But yeah, the psychic came to St. Louis. and <laughs> What an idiot. Whoever posted that, right. you should be ashamed of yourself, and you're not allowed to be on the Internet anymore. There's, there's, a, there's a podcaster that starts out by that same and for it says something like uh, and for reasons unknown they mailed it to a psyche. Well, no, it was a TV show. We know the reason. <laughs> there, there was a reason. Right. So, so I asked I asked uh, uh, McGlynn, you know, about Noreen. He said it's funny you mentioned Noreen. I'm like, yeah, I spoke to her. He said I have two, and that's when the statement come out. Like, like yeah. it was in his rebuttal to to just that. Yeah. So, you know. Was it contrived? I mean, I think yeah, I think he was wanting to get to that point yeah, somewhere yeah. in there. So, because again, I didn't even bring it up. He just threw it at me. So. Right, and I know you weren't allowed to like show it in the documentary or anything because the officer who signed for it, he says, still works for the department, and it makes sense because obviously, if you've seen how this woman has gotten shit, you don't want those police officers to get that same shit. Mm-hmm. Whoever it is made a mistake, and mistakes happen, and they didn't do it on fucking purpose, but. Um, Totally lost my train of thought right in the middle of that sentence. But but even with that, with with what you're saying, y- yeah, you, you know, it, I asked him for, hey, can can I show that in yeah, the movie? Yeah. And he told me, you know, no, that's right. where that came from. Right. And I said, well, I, I just want it as kind of evidence. And he said, I'm telling you, it's there. Yeah, yeah. That's your evidence. Yeah. So I left it at that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's what I was going to ask if he showed it to you, or if yeah. it was just like you're just going to have to trust me. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. I mean, of course, I'm going to trust sense. him. Yeah, yeah Because absolutely. why would you even? Why, tell, why would you admit to getting it back? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Totally. I was just curious if yeah. you saw it. <laughs> so okay, the, I had one last thing that I wanted to tell you, and I was waiting to tell you on the podcast, and I literally wanted to text you for the past two months to tell you this, but I was trying to wait till we talked to you again. So I went to dinner uh, at the end of November for my brother-in-law's birthday. And uh, my brother-in-law and my husband grew up with someone who works for the police department and works with McGlynn. Uh, so he was at the dinner. And while we were at dinner, of course, the podcast came up. And um, I totally forgot that he was even a police officer. Um, and so I asked him if he'd seen, you know, I mentioned, of course, mentioned the case, asked if he'd watched the documentary. He said, yeah, he actually watched it. And I was like, what did you think of it? Did you love it? And he said, you did a great job. And he really enjoyed it. So I just wanted to make sure I passed that on. Oh, I don't want to say his name because I don't know if he wants his name on my podcast, but um, he knows who he is. He better be listening. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but he said he really enjoyed the, pot, the um, documentary as well. And that you did a great job. So. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I, uh, to tell him, thank you if you're listening. Thank you so much. Uh, after Burgoon saw it. Uh, Burgoon called me, and and we had uh, good conversations. Uh, he he told me that there was one point in in the film, only one, that he said I didn't have gray hair at that point. <laughs> so that wasn't me. That's what he told me. So you kind of lose where where I'm going with that. So, uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, he he said he loved it. He uh, he didn't dispute the Noreen thing. Yeah. Uh, he didn't dispute anything. What he did tell me was, which I again speaks to Dr. Carter. He he said, "I wish I would have had that information at that time." Yeah. About the aspirated blood yeah. and, and all of that and the rape. So I I think, in knowing the doctors involved, and I won't say any name, that the the communication level wasn't the same. Right. It was here. I did it. Right, because well, you, you did out. have the information at that time. Mm-hmm. Right, just didn't have the right person right. So, on it. Right, just didn't pass it along mm-hmm. the way it needed to be passed along. And and I I honestly believe that comes across in the film. Yeah, you know. So yeah, I think uh, so too. I don't I don't disagree. Do you have any other? I'm good. Questions? 
Okay. So, um, yeah, I, yes, no, please, go ahead. We haven't talked about the, the beginning. The, the two men. Oh, oh the two men. Yes. <laughs> no, I had some See what I'm other saying? stuff, and I wasn't sure, like, well, I know, because I know you we mentioned did it. it in just much different orders yeah, yeah. and everything. Um, so a couple of points with that. So there's a lot of different stories there, too. And I yeah. know we talked about how, you know, the Godfather comes in and is like, oh, these, these boys aren't involved, but are we going to check you know into it a little bit more um but the whole story behind that you know the the boys finding them and then the story that happens about them getting a pipe to fix a car and and why that was used right well well, like i said earlier it was so many people giving different stories yeah and they had to bring it bring it into to one but uh yeah so that was really the first point I wanted to focus on in my research was like, why the fuck were they one driving in the neighborhood, two looking for pipes? Like, nothing about that story made sense to me. Yeah. And uh, then I'm looking at the pictures and I'm like, the fucking buildings boarded up. So you're not getting to any other floors. The back stairwells collapsed. Right. So all the stories are there searching through the whole building and end up in the basement. Well, the only fucking door that's open is the basement door. So, right. So, of course, that's where you're going. So I'm like, okay, so let me find out about these two men. So originally we had put out like an hour kind of YouTube version of what of what we were working on. But, but again, people reached out to me like uh, – the National uh, Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They're like, you know, that's your, that's what you need to do. Focus on that. Make it bigger. There's more stuff you can find out. Uh, even though I had stuff they didn't know too, which, which is how, why they reached out to me. But uh, so I'm like, okay, well, I think it's key to figure out who these two guys are. And you start hearing name. Trust me, you you hear a million names, but none of them ever really made sense but then i get a i get a message on facebook from a guy and he tells me i I saw what you did and i think that was my uncle and i honestly to this day can't tell you why that message amongst all the others like stood out to me Mm -hmm. but i responded to him and just through a quick conversation i said okay well i'm meeting with one of the officers and uh I'll, i'll see so I'm, I'm meeting with this officer, and he was one of the ones involved uh, mid-2000s. Uh, and we're talking, and uh, so he's like, the, the guys that found it. So in my mind, I'm like, all right, this is my opportunity. I'm going to throw these names out here and see if he bites. So as he's talking, I'm like, oh, so you mean uh, – well, I don't want to say their whole names, but right. you mean Mr. Harris and Mr. Thompson? Yeah, that's them. So I know I had them. Yeah, <laughs> okay, so that, there we are. Yeah. So now I just got to verify them with McGlynn and everything. So I throw them out at McGlynn, and he, he kind of stumbles in the interview. He's like, are you talking? Like, this isn't in the film. He's like, are, are you talking about the two guys? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, and then he's like, hmm. I know them by different names, and I'm like, oh, well, I've had these names verified, so we move on, okay? So we're, we're, so I don't know why, maybe five minutes later, he's just like, well, you know, those are their last names. Like, we, he went back to right. it. So, <laughs> so yes, I knew like, it. Like, it took a minute. Go, okay, all right, yeah, we can, we can do that. So I'm like, yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah, you know, You know what I mean? But because of that statement is one of the reasons I chose, okay, well, if, if that would be the rebuttal, I'll only use the last names for that reason because yeah. I don't. But but his clarification is 
there's street names and there's regular names. So yeah. depending on which officer finds out who, it, it could be this guy or, or that guy. Right. Okay. You know, yeah. So, but but uh, Mr. Thompson is the one that, that has passed away, and it, it was his family member that I spoke to. Gotcha. So. And so why were they not suspects? Because Burgoon said they weren't. That's it. That's it. That's where we went. We just were like, that's good enough. And we yeah. just never looked at that again. Well, I mean, they did look at it because they gave DNA. and they, they, That's what I'm, yeah. Yeah. They've gave, say that again. They gave DNA, right? Isn't that what they said? Where are they going to compare that against? Do they have suspect DNA? I didn't even think about that. I'm just saying. That's a right. that's a very good so thought there, sir. They they are not were not suspects, are not suspects, but yeah. they did well, give I'm not. They, I was only eight. Right. So. They did give <laughs> Yeah. They did give their DNA. I mean I do have a brother that was around right. and So there is DNA surrounding this that's just sitting there. Now we're not I'm, really I'm able to I'm test, not saying that. I'm test just that against anything and i think he's i think it was burgoon that said it in the documentary said that they gave samples i'm pretty sure i did watch it today but also but that I could also be too. to appease people That's you know true. we've decided they're not suspects but like of course we took dna we would do that of course but, but dna or, but but dna wasn't right viable or they did like a blood type yeah. and their blood type didn't match it could be something as simple as that maybe they don't have it anymore okay or semen sample since that's you, what you found at the scene of the crime, so you only we have to match these things. I can't take blood and match it to this. So, oh my goodness! Um, Could match it against paint on the wall, maybe a leaf, mm-hmm. maybe True. maybe a board or board. something. You, you, I mean, we don't know what the offender possibly touched or what could happen. Right. On oh, there, just. And you would hope that maybe they have so much more than obviously we know about, but just that whole area uh, of walking down into the room, you know, there's blood splatter or brushed on the wall or, yeah. Um, But the story about the car and the pipe, that was a story that they were like told to tell because uh, the police thought it made more sense, or they thought it made more sense, but then it was just like, like I said, it was just so many different police gave a, a story to different news outlets mm-hmm. that they had to make one story out out of many, right. and uh, that's just the story that came out. But again, you know, the whole time for forty years, it's always been two men, and it, in my mind, I I, I envision. I'll say 30 to 40 year olds. I mean, yeah. just by the way the story was, like, who's going to fix a, a pipe with a car? But again, they're te- late teenagers, 18, yeah. 19 years old. They live literally across one street. Well, when you hear men or women, too, like, you think grown ups. You're thinking right. an adult. You're thinking someone who's, I don't know, 25, 26, 30, whatever. You're not, even though technically an 18 year old is an adult. If you've ever known any or been one, they're not. They're not (laughs) the same thing. (laughs) And so then the story is that they go back home and to tell everyone that they've found a body. And then that's when some of the relatives come with them, where we have one of the women who uncovers the body with just her bare hands. Just kind of brushes. Yeah, we have a family member. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I say that. I, I, I didn't say it was a woman, but it was. Okay. It, the film doesn't say that. Okay. But, but yeah, yeah, so it was the sister of, of one of the gentlemen. Okay. And uh, so she says that, you know, again, the weather broke from a cold winter that day. So around 1230 is when they were starting like this family barbecue and people were gathering. So the two had just, just wandered off. You know, they, they weren't. They weren't missing, but they weren't looking for them either. You, you know what I mean? Right. They're in their neighborhood, you know, and they're, again, late teenagers. So uh, they come back, and they, they say that, hey, they, they, they think they found a body. At this time, they don't know it's decapitated. So she said that she remembered that a group of them went. She said she's pretty sure it's more than six, but there's no way it was more than ten. And they went down to, to where it was, and they're, they're looking at it. And um, so they... Uh, Again, a lighter gets flicked. So I think this is where the actual lighter comes in, in the actual story. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she, she kneels down to brush the leaves off. And, and that's as she's brushing where the head would be, there was no head there. And because she's doing that, what freaked everybody out, she's freaking out, so everybody else is freaking out. Yeah. What made that story so believable is she described for me that the crime scene photos and I didn't even have those yet you, you know what yeah. I mean so when I seen them everything she said was there the only difference was she said that the the sweater looked pink to her and at first I was like ah oh, that kind of throws it off but then I'm like but what would a yellow sweater look like under a flame mm-hmm. you know what would the color act especially with blood well, on it I was going to say with yeah. blood on it and yeah. it was a light enough yellow is that Absolutely. what we're going yeah. with? Yellow, yeah. you know, yeah. yellow. Yeah. Um, it's a light enough color that, that I feel like that would happen so easily. Absolutely. So, I mean, and I can't, I know I know everybody's that's in the world out there take, taking my word on that, but I can't tell you in all honesty the exact vividness she painted that matched the crime scene photos. Mm. So, and, and the one I showed you all in the doorway where she actually was laying, that... She gave me that whole scene, right. like everything that was in that room. And again, I don't think it was probably her first time down in that basement. I mean, I, I won't say this is like a hangout spot, but I, but I, I think it, it it's really a traveled spot. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, you're talking kids in a neighborhood running around playing. That makes sense. It's yeah. a place to go play. And she's not that much older than than they were, you yeah. know, so. But and did they interview the rest of the family? Like once the boys and they talked to them, did they interview everyone more like to figure out how did the boys look when they came back in? How were they dressed? Yeah. Was there anything on their clothes? You know. So I'm, I'm gonna say no to that, and I'm, I'm gonna leave it right there for okay. for other reasons. But there are other reasons why not. Okay. Yeah. So. And I mean, you know, you even you mentioned like they all found it, and then kind of everybody scattered because they didn't want to talk to the police. I mean, so it makes sense that they would be like, no thanks, I don't want to be interviewed. Right, but I would. So it wasn't even you, it wasn't even known to the police. There, the, the, again, there's there's aspects happening here that the police didn't know. They didn't yeah. know a group went down there. They don't doubt yeah, it, yeah, yeah. like you see in in, yeah. in the thing. They don't doubt it. That's the story they got. And again, McGlynn mm-hmm. didn't even start the force yet, right. so, so he's going on the reports and stuff like that. Right. But again, the police didn't even know that until I was doing my research that the two houses on the corner were boarding houses in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So so that was like another avenue. But again, who and it's not the police's fault. Who's talking to the police? Like, like especially in that neighborhood. Right. Like, like they're not 
they're not going to fuck with the police like right. that. You know what right. I mean? Like, Absolutely. no, you're the enemy. And, and then in all honesty, if already with the distrust of the police, especially the St. Louis police at that time, if it would have came out that this white Caucasian pubic hair, you think it's a police officer? Do you know how many people would have thought, oh, the fucking cops did it? Yeah, yeah you know what I mean? absolutely. Like, so, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, you can see why elements of the story were the way they were. Yeah. You know, so, especially with knowing even in, in your research and in the film, like, like, the, that community is already thinking like they solve white crimes, not black crimes. Right, right. So you tell them it's a cop's, it's a cop's hair. It's 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 really going to be chaotic. Absolutely. So. For those of you who can't see, Holly's looking. Through I'm notes. checking through my notes, just, just making sure they're not like what the what fuck are they doing. I do have on here what you can't remember why, but there were two letters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on the letters? Well, there were way more than two letters. Before so, so yeah. Two. So you have two because uh, uh, two is what was known to the public. Okay, okay. Uh, one more than the second one, but only the two is what was put out there to the public. So the the first one came and uh, to the police department, and it was stating that it was a particular man that had done it. Mm -hmm. So the police were searching for that man, and... I would just say all research says carefully, and I like reading things carefully, but it carefully says that they weren't able to find that man at, at that time. So I think that's important, the ending part there. Uh, the second one comes in 1986. The first one is like immediately after the, uh, the crime happens. So Captain Alfin is actually in Atlanta now, so he's still around too. He was the he wasn't necessarily involved in the case, but he was over the seventh district at the time. So it's his officers that were on the crime scene that he had to provide, you know, psychologists to and stuff so that they could talk out from what they seen. And so the letter comes in and it states aspects of the crime unknown to the public at that time. But even though, again, reading into what's said. He concludes his press conference by saying, reach out to us and we will protect you. So I'm assuming that it's somebody saying, hey, I know who it is, but I can't tell you who it is, or, or why would you need protection to that point? Right. So that's two. Uh, I know for a fact there's a third for sure, because in doing this research, I wanted to research all newspapers. So the Evening World was a newspaper at that time that was available into the city. So there's actually a collection of the Evening World owned by a New Yorker that's in the uh, Washington University library that I was able to get a librarian to get permission from the person in New York to give me sections that were about this case and one of them were and there weren't many but one of them were of uh, a letter that was sent to the evening world saying from a lady that said she knew who the killer was but was scared for her life so I know that's a third letter but it sounds like it could possibly be the same person or the same type of letter maybe mailed to two different agencies at one time so there's three letters so then asking McGlynn about it he says, if you listen in the film, he says, if you knew the volume of letters at the time. So we're speaking, I would say volume has to be above 20 in my mind. I, right. I wouldn't say if it was 10, I'd say 10. It personally, it, but he says volume of letters. So I assume there's much. When uh, 
And again, Shelby tell you she was there, so I'm I'm trying to be in detective mode. So I'm asking uh, McGlynn, I'm like, so did they ever do evidence on the stamp? Because they probably licked the stamp or maybe the back of the envelope because they licked it or they touched it. And, and his, his response it was an awesome one, I'll say. It gave insight. He said, no. He said, 1983, who would have thought licking a stamp would That's become right. something later? He said, I don't even think they fingerprinted it because how many people at the post office touched that letter how many read the letter when it got here to the police yeah. station so just just how many people they knew would have touched it was no reason even the fingerprint it. and i think so. sometimes people forget about that too like the timing like the timing or you know whatever else like you think of something you go, well why why don't they do this well there's probably a reason why they didn't do that thing now of course there are times when there's just you know not great police work or those things do happen but a lot of times there's a reason that they're not doing right. something. We just don't get it because we're emotional about the case or we want it solved or whatever, you know. Is yeah. it possible they still have those letters with the envelope? Oh, yeah, the absolutely. Stamp and the stuff? Uh, I, physically, I don't know. Uh, but I would say they're, they're digitized in the computer like McGlynn was saying because he told me a lot of the paperwork was just falling apart because we're talking about actual paper mm -hmm. from 1983 and i'm sure they weren't buying the best paper right at the time for the police station or anything like that so and again he he knows from reading one report that there's pages missing here or there that probably either disintegrated walked off or, or who knows what happened you know i mean really it was it was a different time in policing so oh absolutely and so then at the end of that it was you know they they couldn't locate him at that time so where are they now is that something they can continue to look into it just said oh can't find him and right. we're moving on well I'll, I'll just say in asking about uh elements like that uh he just pretty much sums it all up uh with a statement that i liked where he just said you know, if you if you if you chase every rabbit hole, you're just going to come out of the next one. That's so. And thinking about that time, I feel like doing true crime, doing the podcast, it seems like a time where that happened a lot, where people even just sent in letters uh, just to be assholes, mm -hmm. like having nothing to do with it and pretending like they know everything about it. And it seems like around that era, that was just that's what they did before they what had people did, to do right. right. Well, you know, <laughs> even in doing the research for this, again, so many people contacted me, and, you know, I, I, I had to vet everything, vet it out. Like, I heard so many stories that just didn't didn't make sense that we had to yeah. pick holes, and I'll tell you an example. So we're, we're at the, the original graveyard, and we're talking about uh, the body being missing and, and them not being able to locate the body. So we're talking to a particular gentleman. I won't say any names or anything, but we're talking to a particular gentleman about it. And Shelby and Lee are listening to a gentleman tell them a long story about how the reason the body wasn't underneath the headstone was because they had to keep moving her because people was trying to get to her body. As soon as it came out of his mouth, I walked the fuck off. Mm -hmm. Shelby and Lee are standing over there for about 20 minutes. They walk up to the truck to me and they start saying, "It's in my lying shit, they start saying, oh man, I can't believe this story, I can't believe that. And I told them, he's fucking lying. It's not the truth. And they're like, well, how do you know? I said, because if that were the case, then how were they within eight inches of finding that body? Right. 
because the pictures wouldn't have matched up. Right. You, you know what I mean? So the story just didn't didn't make sense. Right. And then they were like, yeah, I, I never thought about it. Did that happen? When we thought about the pictures. <laughs> you're like, okay. Oh, fine. Right. But then I, I, I know I said on the one we didn't get and all that, but I truly mean this from my heart. Like, like to me, Abby Stalinu is a fucking hero. Oh, my gosh. Like, with the... Who looks at a picture and says, I can find that? You, right. you know, like, like right. I can do that. Sure. No problem. And she was so, like, I think she said something about being a, you know, oh, I was a cocky young, whatever, when she did it in the documentary. She says that. And I was like, yes, but you should have been. Right. There's no need to be humble. <laughs> right. You were a badass. That's what you did. Yeah, she was She was awesome. Like, I, like I, I knew from the beginning I wanted that interview with her. And really, the day the, that's why I mean all this stuff fell in. So this is 18 months later. I decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and start editing this film. I get an email from Abby. Okay, I'll do it. So I, I had to add it in. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? And and the whole the whole interview is what you see. There wasn't. She didn't elaborate too much. She didn't. It, I mean, really, it was what it was. That the only thing that's not in there is is that I told her that also. Not only her being a hero, the fact that her uncle thought of her, like I appreciated that, and I said I, I wanted to close that segment on a on a scene with his face, and she told me that would be awesome. Yeah, maybe. So yeah, so but yeah, my my niece can do that. Yeah, I can do that. You, you know what I mean? Like that, that's incredible. But even even Ed today, you know, I, I reached out to him, and he he's the gentleman that took the pictures yeah. of the first funeral. Think it was key to, to have somebody from the first funeral, especially that perspective, because it comes to play later. And right. he said from that point, the only time he's ever been t- somebody reached out to him was for those pictures, and it was Christine Byer uh, from she was with the St. Louis Post at that time. And he never heard anything again. Like, like they didn't even invite him out to anything at the cemetery. And he gave, he gave the pictures and all of that. So, like, the pictures you see in the film are pictures he are the pictures he gave them. Like, he he allowed me to use them in the film. gave gave them to me on a, a hard drive and everything. And so, there's pictures in there that you won't see anywhere else. Like, walking from the casket up there. My goodness. Yeah. So he 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 was awesome too. And then his his wife, uh, she she's not in the film, but but she uh, she helped us out. Like you read, the, mm-hmm. so so he is emotional about this too. I mean, you got to remember, he's like 24, fresh out of college, and and so he's had a connection from that day till now that he hasn't been able to get out anywhere, and right. and so like during the interview, his wife is like. Well, tell them what you told me here. So she knew what he wanted to say, but he couldn't get out emotionally. So she really helped that interview, and I appreciated that so much. So, And then who knew, you know, if it wasn't for uh, the Garden of Innocence, who who knew there was even a video of her funeral out there? I didn't know that. Right. You know, and then that actually is, uh, it's not from that day, but that actually is, Peter Gudis is reading that day of him reading o- over that that end segment there. So I mean, he was he was a great interview too, and he was friends with Bergoon's brother growing up. So full circle. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. like really. Yeah. So crazy. It all just fell into place perfectly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now this ties in a little bit to that. Um, I have on your how often did people get buried on top of someone else because that was part of. The issue, right? Yeah, I think I think that was uh, 
that was an everyday practice. Yeah. So, again, podcasters hate me, YouTubers hate me. Uh, so it, what, what, it, it was known in the St. Louis crime life that this was a cemetery that purposely would dig graves the day before a funeral. And it's not fenced off or anything. You could just walk on. Mm-hmm. So there was that purpose to drop bodies in there. All right. So there was that purpose. Uh, and that was told to us by quite a bit of a crime families that brought it up to the police. And it, it wasn't disputed oh, that, wow. that that was happening. But where this story gets confused by podcasters is the lady that committed suicide, Virginia Younger, was not the owner of the cemetery at the time. She didn't become the owner until after 1986. So the original owner, the gentleman, she was his personal secretary. And then he was told after uh, 1983 he couldn't bury bodies anymore because of what was going on. So he began the process to to give the property to Virginia Younger, who received it in 1986, so that she could bury bodies again. I think that's key. The reason I think that's key is because... uh, where the headstone was placed, I, I believe, and again, this is my belief, my, my theory, So, but I think I can prove it, is that where the headstone is uh, was put there on purpose because I think they just picked some general area, but they knew where Jane Doe was. And the reason I say that is because if you listen to Abby, it's, she says that there was a body just three feet down. All right? Mm-hmm. So imagine... If Jane Doe gets buried, oh, they're never going to identify her. So I'm going to resell this grave. So you put another body in there, cover it up. But now, five months later, they want to put a headstone down. And you're like, okay, if I put this headstone where her body is, the family of that other person is going to know that there's two bodies in that grave. Mm -hmm. So I have to put this headstone somewhere else. And here's why I think I can prove that. Abby says something key. She says, when we were three feet down, the reason I decided to go six feet is because there was a handle of the original casket. So we went to six feet deep. So if the original casket is six feet deep and never disturbed, why is there a handle three feet up? Right. So, I mean, we, I just think that. So just luck at that point, finding the handle like. No, I, I think I think. She was there. Right. They dug again to bury another body there and then buried that on top. But knowing that there's multiple bodies in there, now we can't put a headstone over a grave with multiple bodies. So we're going to stick it kind of over where she's at. Right. But not necessarily. And it doesn't really matter where her headstone is because they're probably never going to figure it out anyway. Exactly. So she's going to stay here. Who cares? Exactly. Oh, my gosh. And then Virginia Younger, like like we were talking about. So uh, two key things about her that that. I've never heard discussed anywhere else. And by the way, there's a paper written by a WashU student that is awesome about that cemetery. I mean, really, if you're looking like for detail research, find that paper. It's awesome. Abby has a paper about her research too. Mm-hmm. But uh, so Virginia Younger actually committed suicide, and Burgoon told me this. So it's it's not really knowledge that's out there either. But she committed suicide because she was raped in the office at the cemetery. She didn't really commit suicide because of the uh, the state trying to get on her, although it's presumed because of those together. Okay. But it really, it pre, I mean, excuse me, it, it was after the rape. 
So immediately after the rape, she lived in Normandy. She killed herself in Normandy. Uh, part of the note, I believe, she left said that uh, she wanted to be cremated because she didn't want people to look down on her in her death. Uh. So, I mean, think of the personality you have to have that you think you're above other people, right. even though you're, you're part of what was happening at that cemetery. You think you're better, because this is an African-American cemetery, so you think you're better than African-Americans, and you don't want people to look down upon you in death, right. you know, so. Yeah. Just odd facts. Oh, absolutely, so, yeah. that's awful. Okay. But the, the, the researcher that did the paper is the one who gave me the picture of Virginia Younger. And that's, that's something we didn't talk about in the, the last podcast, but I thought was key, was in doing this research and hearing about it over the years, I heard all these fucking names, but didn't know who was. So if you watch this film, Every name you hear, you will see at least a picture of who they are. Yeah. So that you can associate who did what and stuff like that. And I don't think that's ever been done right. uh, to the level that I tried to do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, and so. it's amazing. And yes. I think it makes just a huge difference with connection so and getting people involved and, and just pulling them into that case more. Right. Absolutely. And I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another thing. Uh, I know we're short on time. I apologize. But no, uh, <laughs> we definitely aren't trying to rush you. No, nope. if you hear the librarians come in and say, yeah. "Excuse me, shut up." <laughs> so, so another big misconception is uh, Burgoon and Herb Riley. They were not partners. So, Burgoon was partners with um, what, what was his name? Uh, George Bender. Mm -hmm. So they were partners, Burgoon and George Bender. Herb and Burgoon were the next two up on the, the homicide board for the next homicide. That's how they ended up working together. But okay. that's why you hear George Bender's name, because he was Burgoon's partner. So, yeah, a lot of people say partners, Herb, Herb Riley and Burgoon. Not, not the case. Now, now, Herb was respected, too. You, you know, I mean, he, he really was. So I think he's the one, I think. I believe it's him that, it, that that retired with only two cases not solved. Wow. You know, and then you got the other one that's the Godfather homicide. Right. And you got two of the most amazing cops in St. Louis and they can't figure out what's happening. Right. You know, so which, but which they tells were, you how, how tough this case is. It's not hmm. it's not that they just haven't done it or anything exactly. like that. I mean they had had some of the best detectives and still couldn't get them. And, and imagine that imagine that for for Leroy Atkins. He's like, Okay, I got my Best two yeah. on this case. Right, yeah. So he, he's really, and I don't think that's ever talked about, that he had his best two. Like, he's yeah. really sending a message to the public. He, yeah. he In his mind, this is going to be solved quickly, and this is going to tell them I really care, and it just didn't work out right. that way for him. It just him. so happens that this case is the one that... Which, how does that happen? Out. How do you have a decapitated child and not figure that out? Right. All the pieces just lined up just perfectly. Can't do DNA yet. Then when you can do DNA, it's only these things. And then you have to wait for genealogy to become a huge thing. And then you have mm -hmm. to wait for genetic genealogy to even become a thing, which really is only right. in the past, I mean, not even 10 years ago. Right. Because really uh, that agreed. didn't start until the Golden State Killers when that became a thing. So mm -hmm. that's what, like 2016, 2017, somewhere in there? Yeah, I, and you know, you know, I can remember that too. I, I remember because I, at that time I was in Columbus, Ohio, and I remember there was a TV show on the, at the time where they were covering the East Area rapists, and 
and the Golden State Killer. And then all of a sudden, after like three or four episodes, they disappeared. Right. And, th- and then they found him. Yeah. And, and it became a whole different TV show. Yeah. But yeah, I, I clearly remember that. Well, that one even, that case even brings back what you were saying before about how, you know, this department didn't want to work with this department because that's what happened there where mm-hmm. they've got, he had three different nicknames. Mm-hmm. He's the Visalia Ransacker, he's this, he's this. And no one, and like I said, Paul Holes, who I adore, talked about how, you know, he was trying to get these other people to work with him, and they were just like, no, I'm not going to fucking give you this stuff. And it's right. like, you guys could have stopped that motherfucker, but because right. they you know, didn't want to work together because of pride or whatever. Hopefully we're breeding that pride like that out of our kids so right. that the next but generations see, even, will keep not e- doing that. <laughs> even, in your, even in your breath right there, you said one statement that, that covered two aspects, which is what I found in this case. You said, no, we're not going to give them the information, all right? But you got to look at that two ways. It's not that they don't want to solve the case. It's right. that they want to be the one to solve right. the case. Mm-hmm. So it, it, telling you no is not saying I don't want to solve it. But, right. but the way we hear it right. is they don't give a shit. But it's, right. it's not they care so much, in my opinion. You know? yeah. I won't say all of them, but the, right. but the, they do care so much. Because they even happened in, with the, the Night Stalker. Yeah. Like it, it, th- those two detectives had to suck their pride up to get the information out to the rest of the state, and then yeah. they weren't even the ones to actually capture him. Right. So, I mean, but at, w- what are you going to do? But I do want to say that no real officers, well, I, I can't speak for the officers, but I did not get any indication that it was truly believed. Is it possible? Yes, but it was never truly believed Vernon Brown had anything to do with this at all. He gets thrown in a lot. And again, I can't speak for anyone, but that's just the vibe that was given. Like, no. And the one cop, Tom Carroll, that said that to the press or whatever, well, you're not releasing everything, so what are you going to say? Okay, if I give him this. But like, he wasn't even in St. Louis at the time. Right. You know, his, his crimes kind of don't match. He never admitted to it, even though he admitted to another one. But it, it just didn't involve it or whatever. So he got pulled in because he lived at 5600 Enright, mm-hmm. and this happened at 5600 Clemens. Mm-hmm. So one of the detectives told me at that time they, they could only type in numbers. So when they would type in 5600, his name popped up because oh, he lived at a 5600 block. And because he was a serial killer, that's how he got in. But then, like I think I told you the last time, that they told me that they actually went to Washington and uh, interviewed the Green River Killer before he was known to be a serial killer, but his name came up in this case. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think you mentioned Samuel Little coming up too, right? Po- uh, uh, as a possibility, and, yeah. And his, I mean, his MO doesn't match that at all, at right? All. And he I'm wasn't. Like trying, I don't though. think I can think of any MO that matches that. No, I, no. and I, and I believe that that came up, believing, believing that. It, hypothetically, again, I don't. I'm just saying how it probably came up that if he killed the mother, then he would have had to kill the daughter, right? Too. Right. You, you okay. know, so, so again, these are just they, they were really trying. I like, yeah, like we, we got to look everywhere. Oh, you know absolutely. what I mean? So, and sometimes MOs change. You know, all those mm-hmm. things. Sometimes they try something and go, yeah, you know what? That wasn't for me. Or things they didn't want to happen, like the daughter wasn't supposed to be there. She was supposed to be somewhere else, and then she came in, so I have no choice but to do this. Exactly. Even though it's different than everything else because it wasn't expecting you. Exactly. And and Dr. Carter believes that this individual, and this isn't in the film because 
again, I, I wanted to put the factual stuff that I that could definitely prove. But in in her professional opinion, this is not a killer or a serial killer. This is a career rapist, first or second rape. The murder occurred because of the relationship to the child or the knowledge the child had of the person. Mm -hmm. But if she believed if the police would go back and stop looking at killers and look at rapists, they could probably solve the case. And that that's her opinion. Yeah. So I, I think that's key too. You know, I, I really do. Oh, but, absolutely. but then the great thing is that if you hadn't gotten her to look at this case, if you hadn't contacted her, then they may not, may not have ever had anybody give that theory. Yeah, especially so about that aspirated now, blood. Even though they knew it was there, like it, it was never even talked about like that. But right. but her being another hero of mine, because oh, yeah. like like honestly, I I, I got to tell that story. It is so it's a Saturday. I know we're getting short. It's a Saturday. We're literally gonna talk until they're like get the fuck out of the library. Right now. So it was a Saturday, and I'm like I've, I've, at this point I've had the the autopsy for almost a year, and I'm like I'm reading it, but right. but what the fuck am I reading? You know what I mean? So I'm like I gotta find somebody that can explain this to me, and I'm literally watching YouTube, and I'm like let me see if there's a medical examiner out there. She's the first one that pops up on on the little thing, and she's talking, but I'm understanding everything she's saying. I'm like so let me contact her. So I looked on LinkedIn. I sent her a message probably a day or two later she hit me back and and her words were like yeah i'd love to help uh my fee is i don't charge anything uh which was great awesome Yo, that, i love that's that what, fee that's <laughs> the best fee ever that's <laughs> what that's what makes her a hero and she said uh but i'm 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 having to do some personal things right now, so you have to give me some time. So it took maybe a month, you know, for her to, to be able to give me that time. And again, I'm thinking it's kind of like Mary Kate. She's going to look at it. I'm going to get a quick interview. She might point out one or two things. But she came <laughs> with a stack of papers, right. maybe 10 times the size of because all types of reports are only four pages. Right. So, like, she's just got all of this ready to go. Yeah. And, uh, the beauty to it was that when I, I said, do you want me to tell you about the case? She said, no, I don't want to know about the case because I don't want anything to take me down a different path than what I'm seeing on the right. paper or whatever. So, like, as we're doing the interview, she's getting to certain points. And even though it's not in the film, like, she'll say at the time, you know, no, no, she said. They collected the rope in the sweater, and if they still have it, and then I'm, I'm literally on the thing, like, mm, and she's like, no. Don't tell me that, you know. So that's why she says, at the time, yeah. they collected the rope right. and sweater. Yeah. So we then we then talked about it after, and she was just amazed uh, at uh, pretty much like we're saying, like how everything happened, yeah. you know. And 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 could it have happened better? Maybe, but but who would have been the detective to do it? Right. You know, right? So, but and everything has. I mean, even if you like for your documentary, even if if you had done it when you started talking about doing it. Genetic genealogy wasn't a thing then. No, 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 no. So nothing, the way that everything lined up, all of those things had to be in place. Because right. my mom died in December 2016. Okay. So if I remember right, I was in Ohio. So that the Golden State Killer thing wasn't even at least till late 17, early 18. I, I, I think it was, I literally was like 2016, yeah. 17, 18. I think it was like 2018. Yeah. That, see, that would sound I, right. I know that because I'm listening to My Favorite Murder and they have connect, you know, they talked to the people, to Paul Holes, who was part of the case. And then, and um, 
I was listening to the episodes and watching as it got closer and they were taught like they did a book tour right before so they're talking about it and they're like you know I think it's gonna get solved in the next five years or whatever and then right. literally two weeks later the episode comes out they're like holy fuck they caught the guy you know right, so, right, right, so right. I think it was like 2018 April right. 2018 I believe is when they right. caught it and it, and it, and it wasn't it wasn't Patton Oswald's wife that was yeah, yeah so she so she wrote the book and she was obsessed with the case right and then she died in the middle of writing the book and then, um, um, oh fuck, I can't think of his last name. Billy uh, is the writer. He and um, Paul Haynes took over and finished the book. And then Paul Holes was the detective on the case, or one mm-hmm. of the detectives. Obviously, it was spanned a long time, so there were lots of detectives on the case. But um, that's how he got involved with that. And then they have the podcast. So I don't. Right. <laughs> they they uh, one of the women on the podcast knew Michelle Patton's wife. Right. And so they ended up on the book tour with them. So, like I say, they're all talking about it, and then just all of a sudden, two weeks later, they're like, "Holy fuck, they caught him!" And right, right. I was like, it was so fun listening to it because, you know, here I am, three years later, and I know what's going to happen. So I'm just listening to it right. like, oh, we're like two episodes out before they catch him. <laughs> it's like listening to it now and going when they talk about like they're going to go on tour, and you're like, you're not. Because right, COVID's right. getting ready. Kind of. And they don't know. Right, right. So you're just listening to all of it and going, nope, that tour is going to get canceled. Nope, right, that tour right. is going to get canceled. Right, right. Yeah, I, thought it, I thought it was funny. And uh, one time I was, they, they asked me, was uh, 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 Brian Alsapa, uh, 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 excuse me, Brian Alaspa, I apologize. <laughs> what was he patting all <laughs> I'm like, no, different case, different case. Different case. Um, so, okay, so I want to make sure that we say before they throw us out of this library, um, what do police need from the public to help solve this case? I know we've kind of talked about it, but just so everyone knows specifically, what do they need? They need that, I won't even say that one, they need every family that, that thinks there's a possibility, even if you don't know that, that someone went missing, if you think there's a chance, just do a DNA test yeah. and, and, and put it in Jed Match, as you were saying, or the other one, which is Family Tree DNA. Just yeah. just put it in there and leave it open. And again, I, I think what's key about that is it's my understanding from CC that you can leave it open for unidentified cases but close to police. Oh, can you? Yeah, I believe so, that she told me that in the film. I have put it on there, but I don't remember. Yeah. And I... And I that's, I guess, probably important. I'm telling everybody to do that. I have put my money where my mouth is. Um, my brother was an addict, was in trouble with police, in and out of prison, and I have put my DNA on there and made sure that police could um, use my DNA for cases because I know that there's a chance he is now deceased, but I know there's a chance that his DNA could be used to solve a crime. I don't know that he did anything that would warrant that, but I put my DNA in there because it's important. So absolutely. And, I haven't and, just said that to people to do it. I have done that as well. Absolutely. And 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 I, I will say that on YouTube, if you if you look, there's there's somebody, you know, I don't I'm not gonna promote another show or anything, but there's a podcaster that actually put her DNA in because of this movie yeah. and, and talking to CC. So that's that's cool too. Incredible. And, and again, and she, we, we want to shout yeah, out yeah. all the other absolutely. Podcasts. So if you have their name, please do you have yeah. the info. No, I mean it's your, it's your show, but I mean honestly, I thought that was cool that, that yeah. she absolutely. was willing to absolutely. do that. So. And that's why I mean I'm sure you're going to continue to do what you do, and because you touch other people and make them, you know, the way that you did the whole thing, all of the way that it, the documentary came together. I mean, it touches people in such a beautiful way that they're ready to just be like, "Yep, I'm in. I'm going to help." 
Absolutely. And the next documentary, you let us know and you come back. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Without question. Yeah. Or, or even if there's a resolution to this case. Yeah. yeah. Oh, when? <laughs> when there's a resolution. We'll <laughs> definitely come back to this. Which I do believe, like I told you, within, within two years. Yeah. And just so you guys know, the phone number to contact is 1 371 TIPS, or you can call, you can email homicide cold cases at stlpd.org if you have information that you think can help solve this case. Thank you for listening. Sweet dreams, spookies.